This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Cindy Wong Brandt, a writer and the founder of the Facebook group Raising Children Unfundamentalist. In this conversation, Cindy and I talk about her evangelical pedigree, which includes, amongst other things, attending Wheaton College and being a recipient of the Billy Graham Award. She also talks about her faith shift over time, as well as her recent resignation from an evangelical institution due to her LGBTQ affirmation. This is something that she wrote about publicly for Sojourners as well, and we get into a little bit more of the details surrounding that event, as well as what led to her starting Raising Children Unfundamentalist. In the final segment of the episode, Cindy also turns the tables on me and asks me about my own faith shift, and it's a really great conversation, um, and as always, I want to get to it as fast as possible. Uh, Cindy's just a, a fascinating person, and I can't wait for you to hear her story. The standard reminders up top, Uh, if you haven't, please rate and review the show. It helps people find the show, and uh, that's really one of the best ways you can support it uh, is support Exvangelical is by letting other people know about it and also just taking a couple minutes and rating uh, the show over on iTunes. Um, Their algorithms have some sort of secret sauce that helps people find them and, and recommend them to other people, so... Please uh, take a few minutes to do that on your phone or on your desktop. My thanks to NotThatJC for your recent review, and also for blessing the world with that amazing username. <laughs> you can also support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. And if you want to connect privately with fellow listeners of the show, search for the Private Exvangelical Facebook group on Facebook. And if Twitter is more your speed, you can find me on Twitter at BRChastain, and you can follow the show on Twitter at ExvangelicalPod. You can also follow the show on Anchor at anchor.fm slash ExvangelicalPod for more short-form audio. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Exvangelical. I have with me this week Cindy Wong Brandt. She is an author and the founder of the Facebook group Raising Children Fundamentalist. Welcome to the show, Cindy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and chat with you. Yeah, likewise. Um, so let's start really just to get a little background about you. That's where we we tend to start in general is just getting a, a little bit of familiarity with your background. So where did you grow up? What was, um, yeah, let's start there. Where did you grow up and what, what was your childhood like? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so I have to be honest with you that... When, you know, I'm often asked to tell my story, my religious upbringing, and I think that you would understand this growing up evangelical as well, that we were often asked to tell testimonies. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just did not, I never have enjoyed telling testimonies, mainly <laughs> growing up, I became a Christian as a child. So I never had like this interesting, dramatic conversion story. Mm-hmm. So I always hated telling testimonies as a kid. And then now, you know, as much as I enjoy storytelling, I do, I don't know, I I like listening to other people's stories, like telling my own story is very boring to me. (laughs) So 
as I was like preparing for this podcast, I was going through my story and thinking through all the details. And I'm just like, man, you know, this is not going to be interesting to anyone. So here's my idea. We'll see what you think about this. Okay. Let's hear it. <laughs> I was thinking that I could list all my evangelical cred. Oh, your right? pedigree. Yes. My best <laughs> evangelical cred. And I can talk a little bit about who I am today and we can start to connect the dots. What sure. do you think about I, I love okay. it. I love it. Okay. So <laughs> here, here we go. My evangelical cred. I call myself a missionary convert. So I was, um, I became a Christian as a child. I was born in a irreligious family. My family was not religious, but they chose to send me, oh, I was born and raised in Taiwan. Um, but they chose to send me to a school for that has an American education system because they believe that the American, the Western education was, you know, more suited to their philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the only school that was available in Taiwan at the time was a school that was founded by missionaries for missionary children. Um, okay. So it was very much a missionary community. And so it was there that I became a Christian at 12 years old. Okay. So Mm -hmm. I've been Christian um, since 12 years old. And then I, I went to what they call the Harvard of Christian colleges, Wheaton college, which of course is um, famous for missionaries such as Jim Elliott. And it's also where Billy Graham went to school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was mentioning beforehand that that I grew up in the shadow so, uh, right. of Wheaton because uh, I went to high school in the suburb nearby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. you're saying uh, Billy Graham and and Jim Elliot, they that's they right. Mm-hmm. And um, and I love to tell the story because I received an award, a scholarship from Billy Graham. It's called you know, the Billy Graham Award for Street Evangelism while wow. I was in college. And I went on to receive both a bachelor's and a master's in Bible and theology. Um, My master's was from Fuller Seminary, also a very reputable evangelical seminary. Mm -hmm. And after that, I, this is what I say, I achieved evangelical sainthood by (laughs) becoming a missionary. (laughs) So that's impressive, right? Absolutely. Evangelical pedigree. Several several gold stars. (laughs) And your and your crown in heaven. (laughs) Yeah. So So, actually I'm I I do have uh, sorry, I had a little delay there. Um I actually what how do you qualify for the Billy goes into um receiving the Billy Graham Award for street evangelism? I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. Um, I know it was because so when I was in college, I I've always tried to be a really good Christian. Like when I became a Christian, because I'm a Type A personality, so mm-hmm. I strive to achieve. I strive to be the best, and and I just did the whole cr- good Christian thing. I was I became really good at praying. I was good at Bible study. I was great at memorizing verses. I went on missions trips and, but the one thing I never was all that good at was evangelizing. Um, simply because I was 
a bit shy as a kid Mm -hmm. and just, you know, the idea of trying to convert people (laughs) was always difficult for me. I I don't think it's uncommon. Mm -hmm. Um, But as you know, the culture very much prioritizes evangelizing Mm -hmm. and sharing the gospel with others is really such a mark of who you are as a Christian. And so when I got to college, I just became increasingly convicted. And so I told myself, I I mean, this is ridiculous in hindsight, but I remember telling myself, I cannot call myself a Christian if I'm not evangelizing. And so I decided to go out every weekend and evangelize just to random people on the street. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. and, And so that work that I did kind of got attention from people in the school and they gave me, they gave me that award. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a common, um, conviction. You know, I think that some, uh, that that's one of the things that, that some people develop a sense of, um, sorry, my daughter's, uh, my daughter's got my attention here. Um, No problem. Go attend to her. She's coming to me. Hold on one second. Yeah, okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, I think I'd, 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 you'll have to ask Mommy to, to find a charger. Wait, here, Sophie, here. Oh. Hi, Sophie. You want to come say hi? No, okay, here. Take this, uh, that cord to Mommy. She can help you, okay? <laughs> Sorry. She, uh, she's, she turned five in May. So <laughs> she, uh, we have a, uh, like a, a hammy down aging iPad that she uses for bedtime music <laughs> and it needs oh, to be charged. So how many kids do you have? just one. Yeah. Oh. Just, just Sophie. Um, but, uh, but she's great. <laughs> she just, yeah. she, she's that she gets up and down a lot <laughs> uh, around, around bedtime. So. Um, uh, sorry, let me get back on track here. Um, I, I think that, 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 um, that sort of conviction about not sharing your faith, um, in that particular, very extroverted way can be a thing that a lot of people, um, that a lot of people feel at some point in their, in their walk, so to speak, or whatever, um, and (laughs) like, it's pretty laudable that you like over, that you... (laughs) <laughs> that you actually pushed yourself yeah. to do that. I mean, well, fortunately, I am extroverted. Um, I I feel like in many ways I was privileged because um, evangelical culture does favor certain personality types, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. So I I was an achiever. I'm extroverted, and so I was able to fit in that world very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I now see it as very damaging to people because I remember people I grew up with, I mean, just beating themselves up over not being able to do it, not being able to talk to people and evangelize mm-hmm. and just feeling like God is disappointed with them and mm-hmm. such a sense of identity. And I remember this and I just think that's so unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what? Um, so when you used to moved on to your evangelical sainthood, um, uh, becoming a missionary, where did you do your missionary work? Uh, it's in a closed access country, so. Oh okay. 
Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, so fast forward to today, mm-hmm. um, about seven months ago, I went to a pride march in my city in Taiwan because Taiwan has recently been going through trying to legalize same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. And so I went to a pride march and I posted a selfie of myself with a rainbow ribbon in my hair and I posted on Facebook. And my conservative evangelical school um, sat me down and told me that I cannot do that because it violates the board's statement of faith that upholds the biblical marriage. And so I chose to resign because I believed strongly in affirming gay marriage. So today I am gay affirming. I am a feminist, I'm social justice I'm a bleeding heart liberal, <laughs> I wrote a blog post called Why I Kissed Evangelism Goodbye, and just a couple days ago I published a blog post with the words anal sex in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, how did I get from column A to column B that is your job as my therapist today to figure out? <laughs> <laughs> yes, therapist on the air. I'm like Dr. Phil. <laughs> yeah, uh wow. I mean that is definitely a a big jump in that fast forward there. <laughs> so so um let's uh I'm gonna borrow from have you ever uh listened to Elizabeth Gilbert's podcast, um Big Magic? Yes, Big Magic. Yeah. Her I love Big Magic. She's got a great um, great device she uses where she says, let's start in the middle and work both ways. <laughs> so, um, start, let's consider this moment here at your, um, at your evangelical school and then sort of work both ways. Um, this, this sort of catalyzing moment, um, for you, um, seven months, you said it was, it was seven months ago. Um, you, yeah. You appeared at a, at a pride rally. You were an employer. I'm I'm sorry, an employee at this conservative school. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Right. And um, what what led you to um, what led you to want to march in the in the pride parade? What what sort of was that your first was that your first appearance in the pride in in the pride parade, or was it your first time posting about it? Um, what was what was your journey to, from from Wheaton to being affirming and and all of that, <laughs> all of that? So okay. that's a very <laughs> in, encompassing phrase there. Yeah, yeah. So I we can backtrack a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's yeah. As I was preparing to to tell this, um, I I feel like there are usually a few inciting incidents that I tell the story of. And mm-hmm. so maybe I can go through a few of those. I think that probably if we want to talk about a very common phrase that people use, which is deconstruction, mm-hmm. uh, probably mm-hmm. what catalyzed my deconstruction or where I can pinpoint the beginning of my deconstruction is probably um, seminary when I went to Fuller Seminary, because I think that was really the first time that I emerged a little bit beyond the evangelical bubble, because um, 
to be fair to the school, the missionary school that I grew up in and Wheaton College, they weren't fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I, I, I would label them as conservative evangelical. Yeah. And um, so it wasn't like it was intense brainwashing. Like they did teach me critical thinking skills. They did encourage curiosity and interrogation, but always within the confines of this um, orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah. And definitely there were boundaries of what's acceptable and what's not. And within the acceptable boundary, they encouraged critical thinking. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, and so I was pretty sheltered. I was very sheltered. Um, in those environments. And going to Fuller, I mean, it was at that point that we started to get pushback from people like, oh, you can't go to Fuller, it's too liberal. Really? Depending on who you talk to, Fuller is liberal or (laughs) or too conservative. Right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But but at that point, yes, lots of people, a lot of our um, mentors were warning us, don't go to Fuller, it's too liberal. Um, And But we didn't pay attention to it we went and it was more, it was fuller is still evangelical. Um, I, I think I do identify as that, mm-hmm. but it is one big step left from Wheaton. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was at fuller that I think we, to use a more modern phrase, even though we were not using that phrase back then, this was in 2001 that we went to fuller it was at Fuller that we began to kind of unveil this unhealthy marriage between right-wing political ideology in America and the Christian gospel. So 2001, of course, was 9-11. And mm. so our professors were very thoughtful in leading us to, um, to critique the national response to this event and, and the way Christians were um, responding. And so, yeah, so that was very helpful. Um, mm. And then it was also at Fuller that I fully embraced becoming a social justice Christian because Fuller gave me the vocabulary to describe what I've actually always been. Even as an evangelical Christian, I've always had a heart for the vulnerable, for the poor, Um, but Fuller gave me the language and the spiritual impetus to say that, yes, this is because of my Christian faith that I do social justice. Mm-hmm. So that was that was my, I think, first foray into beginning to interrogate the tradition, my own faith tradition. Yeah, that's that's uh, very that's very interesting. I think um, maybe from a more conservative perspective, that. I, I love the way you said that, that it gave you the vocabulary to discover and better articulate your own sense of social justice. Because yeah. I, I think that's one of the most powerful things about education. And right. um, I, I think it's interesting just in the sort of social dynamics of education that a lot of times people perceive higher education as a liberalizing force. But perhaps maybe <laughs> what's happening is that that the education is just giving you the vocabulary to express your own (laughs) inherent liberal beliefs. Um, Yeah, it really was for me. It really was. Of course, I didn't think, I didn't think about it being liberal at Fuller. They didn't use 
that kind of language. Yeah. Just and I don't actually, I don't even think they use social justice, but it's, you know, right now as I'm interpreting my experience of the time, mm-hmm. that was when I learned about it. It was when I was exposed to Sojourners and we had read Jim Wallace's book and, and, um, that that would be around the time at what God's politics had come out. Right. Was exactly. Around, okay, I'm very yeah. interested um, if we can go down a little tangent a little bit about um, the year experience of um, 9/11 at Fuller. Um, I was at uh, my my very first full week of Christian college. My freshman year is when 9/11 okay. happened, um, okay. and it had that not happened, I think it would have radically changed my own collegiate experience but mm. and I was in a history program in which they the main professor uh, like the department head and everything uh, taught a number of courses in which he tried to espou- tried to teach us what he called the biblical Christian worldview um, mm. and very similar to what you mentioned about um, being given the tools to critique uh, b- being taught critical thinking and everything like that um, mm-hmm. that was where I, where I was taught that. And it was very good education in that regard, but it just happened oh. to give me the tools to <laughs> dismantle and, and critique again, the faith tradition, just as you're, just as you're describing. But I am right. curious what the experience was, um, at that particular moment in time in a different place, like, uh, Fuller is in California, correct? It's in, right. yeah. Right. So the overall culture was um, more liberal. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what, um, what just just because of that very very particular moment in time and where you happen to be um what what that evangelical experience was like for you um and how and how how the ensuing um major social and cultural events sort of happened for you there as far as the lead up to the war in Iraq and Afghanistan um right. and, else, and and everything else that sort of encapsulates yeah. that that time in uh, American and world history. Right. Well, without a doubt, one of the most influential professors in our lives was Dr. Glenn Stassen, and he was our Christian ethics professor. And it was the first time we had. Well, actually, that's not true. But they, he he taught us about peacemaking. Um, he was very much, he kind of wanted to walk the third way between just war and pacifism. Um, and he wanted to talk about peacemaking. What it, what did it mean to be a peacemaker in this world? And what did it mean to follow Jesus in the ways of peace? And so it was through that framework that he led us to view the events of 9-11 as people were... Um, basically talking about revenge, right? Yeah. Uh, and and so, there, you know, he tried to talk about the prophetic critique of loving your enemies and Jesus' teachings and, and what all that meant. And so that was very helpful, and that was when we began to see how unhealthy it was um, for nationalism to become the idol um, and instead of Jesus. Hmm. Uh, and what Jesus taught. My thinking has evolved on this a little bit more since then, but I'm just telling, sharing yeah, at the time. Yeah. We and then the other, the other professor um, at Fuller at the time was um, a man named Dr. Woodenberry, I believe. 
Dr. Winberry, and he was an expert in Islam. Hmm. And so hmm. he helped address a lot of the, you know, the ensuing Islamophobia that came up because of 9-11. And, um, and so that was a really helpful um, alternative perspective that we got there as well. So yeah, we benefited a lot from learning from these people, um, these two teachers in particular. So um, let's skip, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll skip around just a little bit here. Sure. <laughs> um, from your, from your, your time at seminary to, uh, to your time as a missionary, which was in a closed-access closed country, so we can't speak as much about that um, on the internet and everything, um, but you eventually made your way. Um, your school is also in Taiwan, correct? So. Right. Where you were working um, a few months ago, so right. so you returned back to Taiwan, and actually, was this the same school where you were? Um, where it you is went? the same school. It's oh, a, wow. a different campus, but it's a um, the same organization. It was at the same school, and I have to tell you, it was very difficult for me because at this time I had already full on started my faith shifting process, and I had already gone through a lot of you know, changing my mind on a lot of the ways that I view faith and the world. And, but then coming back to the school where my faith was formed mm -hmm. um, was incredibly triggering in so many ways because, you know, I was watching the little kids go to chapel, you know, singing the same songs that I was taught, which a lot of which I've rejected. And it was, yeah, it was kind of brutal for me. Um, because I was then having to continuing, continue to manage my own faith shift anxiety whilst being triggered all the time. <laughs> yeah. So you were, you were feeling like, um, you, you couldn't be, you couldn't express your true faith. You like had to sort of, is that, is that like sort of how, how it felt or was it, or that, how, how would, I'm, I'm sorry, how would you describe it as far as like the, the conflict that you felt um, between um, the way you saw faith being taught and how you then understood your faith to be. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, I think in, you know, faith shifting is clarifying. And so uh, my journey, I wasn't always clear on what I actually thought. And I was shifting all the time, continuing to change my mind on different things. And so um, it wasn't so much that I... I wasn't able to express how I felt, which is probably true, but it was, it was a lot of confusion um, and a lot of dealing with both what's going on in my head um, and intellectual um, critique or analyses of what I believed and also what's going on in my heart and my sense of identity. 
because my sense of identity, um, as you know, our faith is not just our faith, but it is our identity, you know, and having grown up and being fused into the evangelical identity, that was who I was. And I didn't know how to deal with an intellectual deconstruction. Um, I didn't know what to do with my identity at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it, you know, as you know, it's, it's very, um, it's filled with a lot of angst and, yeah. but I, I shared this in, because I did publish the story of my job resignation for Sojourners. Mm-hmm. And, and I've shared this in there that it was a good time for me as hard as it was because it taught me to cherish community and to cherish human relationships above doctrine. So even though there are a lot of people at the school and the staff that I maybe disagree with and the system even I disagree with, I learned to see them as human beings um, and not just my theological opponents. Yeah. Um, so I learned how to navigate that tension. How do we fight and advocate for what we think is right um, and advocate for justice when you're working with people who are part of the system? Right. Um, and so I worked, I worked hard. I, I tried to, to do this. I tried to be conciliatory. I tried to build human relationships and... But that's also what made that final break very painful for me because mm-hmm. it was like my efforts kind of felt like it wasn't received. Right. Um, and I think this isn't true because my coworkers, you know, is a different story than what the administration decided. Who was, you know, they were the ones that made the decision to, to, yeah, yeah to yeah. address the problem of Cindy Brand. <laughs> <laughs> that's, isn't that odd? That's all, so often the case. It's so, yeah. I mean, right. in evangelical so institutions. It's hard for me to tease that out. It's hard for me to remember, okay, it's not just everybody at the school, right? Because it's human for me to say, you know, that I feel rejected from everybody. So I, I had to tell myself, okay, it's not everybody. It's the administration. Right. Um, but it's not easy all the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, your piece about this in Sojourners is very, very well written, very good. And I actually, one, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read what I think is a very salient point in what you say. The, the time has had come when I can no longer hold that tension. Confronted with the choice to be silent on my support of LGBTQ marriage equality in Taiwan or end employment, I chose the latter. In my reply to the superintendent's request, I stated that it has always been my guiding Christian ethic to stand with the vulnerable and mar- marginalized, and not to not do so would be unconscionable to me before God. And I, I just commend you for that. <laughs> like that's that's yeah. a very, very clear <laughs> and honestly very respectful way to to express that you that this is not a negotiable thing for you. Um, right. So. Uh, yeah, I, I mean that. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that that you're going through this and that you had, yeah. you had to go through this. Um, yeah, it, it was very traumatic for me, and I guess in many ways I'm still healing from it. Um, mm-hmm. But can can we just segue a little bit though into the enneagram? Do you do the enneagram? You know what? That's <laughs> a big blind spot for me. Like I've tried. Uh, I I have, like. 
<laughs> so I've I've tried. I have a friend that that is that has an that's enthusiast. very very much an enthusiast, and yeah. he's he said like books are great, but try to find a spiritual director. I literally have uh, Benedictine sisters like two oh, tenths of a mile that. away, but they don't yes. have any they don't have any openings <laughs> for, oh. for spiritual direction. So I'm trying to find there's there anyways, I'm, I'm, You'll very, have to I'm let interested. Me know if you do end up going with the so, sisters. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I've, I've emailed them. They, they don't have any openings right now regrettably but um anyways so i've done a couple of things and have talked to people that know it i may be some combination of four wing five or the the swap i don't remember oh okay (laughs) so okay um, so the enneagram as you know that it's kind of trending right i feel like it's kind of a white mm -hmm. liberal thing (laughs) (laughs) that's fair that's, that's, that's very fair. I mean, even yeah. though it's an ancient system, I feel like it's very much trending in the white liberal circles. And uh, and so I kind of avoided it just because maybe that's the little bit of the four in me. I just kind of want to be different and unique. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, <laughs> after the trauma of my job resignation, I decided to do it because I felt like I needed help, right? Mm. I, I needed to understand what was going on inside of me and to seek healing that way. And so I did take the Enneagram test. It's like the $14 online. I think it's the legit test. And okay. You'll have to send me out- the link because I don't. <laughs> okay. I will. Okay. So it turns out I'm a, a raging eight. And it explains so much to me at, um, about how I felt and the way that people were responding to my job resignation. Because, you know, so many people call me a hero, Right. I mean, depending on who the conservatives think I'm a total heretic, mm-hmm. but <laughs> the, you know, the progressives, a lot of people call me a hero and I was so uncomfortable with this. And the reason I realized is because as an eight, I am very much a social justice person. I, I believe in principles. I believe in standing up for your principles, no matter what, like it's all or nothing for eights. And the, the other thing to know about eights is Eights want to compel other people to rise to those principles as well. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I felt like I did not want to be called a hero because I was doing the right thing and I felt like everyone else should be doing the right thing too. Like I'm not heroic. This is just something that people should do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and But gotcha. it's like as an eight, I was compelled yeah. for that. Right. I was compelled to see other people around me rise to the occasion. And so when I recognize that in myself, like, oh, okay, not everybody is an eight. (laughs) Some people (laughs) keep peace. Some people care about relationships over standing up for principles. Some people are not all or nothing. They want to live in the gray area and be bridge builders. And and that really helped me because it helped me, frankly, forgive some of my gay affirming friends who I felt like weren't standing up as strongly as I was standing up. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, how could you, how could you do this? How could you not, you know, how could you be all or nothing just like me? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's been a very helpful, um, yeah, part of my healing. And I, I do feel a lot better. Um, yeah, that's good. It's good that it's given you the tools to 
to right. to frame things in a in a healthy way. Um, yeah, I by no means am like some sort of skeptic. It's just a matter of like I <laughs> I haven't yeah, uh, I haven't I haven't put in the, put in the time <laughs> to yeah, to figure out what my particular classification is, or, or so to speak. Yeah, um, but it also explains a lot of my upbringing because, like I said, I've always been social justice. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, that's just part of who I am. And um, it's interesting to to look over my faith shifting journey that even though I've become um, what looks to be like a very different person, really, I've been the same person all along. Mm -hmm. So as an eight, I'm very driven to do the right thing. Right. And I tweeted yesterday that it's like I didn't seek to become the person I am today. I just always try to do the next right thing. Yeah. Um, and so step by step, then I became who I am. And yeah, so, um, but yeah, I wanted to go back to when I was talking about inciting incidents. So Fuller was kind of the beginning of my deconstruction. But the second inciting point would be uh, when my brother, who I always thought was my sister, began, came out and identified as a man. So this was when I was on the mission field. It was about towards the end of our time there in about 2008, um, 2009. And my brother came out as trans. Um, and so that was another, I think, uh, catalyst for, um, I think at that time I probably went on a little bit more of a defensive uh, posture because, again, as an aide, I have this drive to protect those around me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I felt very protective of my brother, knowing that the evangelical ethos would be to reject who he is. Yeah. Um, so, but, but, yeah, I just... I feel like I tell the story of Aiden, that's my brother, often in podcasts and in other places because it's kind of this dramatic story. And it was. It was dramatic. It was a big deal in our family, personally. Um, and it was dramatic in my faith shifting. But mm -hmm. the reality is faith shifting, my faith shift was very gradual. Um, it was years of building up to that point and beyond that point of just reading and thinking and, you know, analyzing and talking with people. And then 2008 was all, was also the kind of when blogs began to burst onto the scene. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so that was very uh, much part of my faith, faith shifting journey because all of a sudden I was able to engage critically with many different voices you know, it's like my evangelical bubble burst wide open at yeah. that point. And then along with what was happening with my, in my own family, um, I think really catalyzed um, a lot of my ideas about, you know, being gay affirming and, and all these other things. And so you asked me, was that my first pride parade? I think it was my first pride parade, but only because of what was happening politically in Taiwan, you know, though okay. it was, you know, it was a big part of what was happening here in my society. But, um, but I have been gay affirming for probably years before that. Yeah.
So actually, let's let's talk a little bit about um, the Facebook group. Um, you started a you've started a large community on Facebook um, uh, called Raising Children Unfundamentalist. Unfundamentalist. Right. Um, I know such a mouthful. <laughs> <What? laughs> but it's great. It's it's very and it describes it perfectly. <laughs> so, cause I think that there are a lot of people who are going through these very same sort of face shifts and right. they are, um, it's, it's interesting. Like yeah. um, so many people, um, are reckoning with, with their upbringing. Um, even if, and I think it's interesting cause you'll have people that had a very heavy, heavy handed, um, sort of childhood where, tenets of evangelicalism um that are destructive were hammered into them by their parents and then there are some people and i would probably i would consider myself in this group where evangelical things were around but it wasn't necessary and like but it wasn't necessarily the parents that were the representatives of that um but at the same time like no matter where the source came from whether it was your school or your youth group or your whatever you don't want to you don't want to pass those things on to your family or to your children so um what what led you to start the group how did it um uh let's start let, let's just start there because i think that's very interesting okay. uh and then okay. we'll then we'll go into some other questions about the group and everything okay so um so i'll have to backtrack a little bit and talk about why i started blogging um uh, it was around 2013. So by this time, like I said, starting 2008, 2009, I began devouring blogs. Like I read articles. I read 20 articles every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just felt like I was made for the information age. I just soaked it all up. And, um, and yeah, so I was consuming blogs voraciously And it got to a point where I began to feel like there were things that I was processing and thinking and it wasn't being said. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and like lots of other people, I started my own blog um, in 2013. And a lot of, um, and the reason that I started doing that was also because uh, I think this is a common experience for people who deconstruct a lot is you kind of get mired in cynicism. Because yeah. you begin to be skeptical and you be, you get resentful and bitter, all of which are valid emotions that I want to validate for anyone who's listening. Um, those are completely legitimate emotions. But for me, I was um, I believed that if I was writing and I was making art and I was creating, that it would counteract the negative effects of cynicism. Hmm. And so that's what I did. I began blogging 
And, you know, like lots of other bloggers, I was blogging about faith and culture and my thoughts and, um, and the process. And it was, it, it was then that I began to document some of my faith shift journey. And, um, and so one day I just had the idea to write about parenting because the reality is for people who are faith shifting, it's like you're dealing with doubt, you're you're wondering what your faith looks like. You're dealing with, like I said, both an intellectual um, deconstruction and a grappling of your identity of who you are and like this very angsty journey. And then at the same time, you add on this incredible responsibility to parent your children and how, what kind of faith you're going to give to them, what kind of spiritual environment you're going to give to them and how in the world can you manage these two very complicated things at the same time? It's <laughs> yeah. like it was too much for any human. Right. <laughs> and basically just said that, you know, I, I said, what in the world, how do we do this? How can we do this? And I published it on my blog and it resonated with a lot of people because I think, especially as millennials are becoming parents, um, they are, you know, the millennials is a generation that is starting to abandon the really religiosity and they still want spirituality, but they're rejecting the toxicity of religion. And so I think a lot, there are a lot of people who are grappling with these issues. And, and so I started my, I started my group and it, you know, it grew, it grew like crazy and um, just was, I was able to form and shape this community of people who are interested in the subject of raising children on fundamentalist. And, um, and I wasn't thinking, I wasn't um, intentionally thinking about this at the time. It, it, it was very organic, but um, I realized that it is, this is my way of moving forward. Right. Mm -hmm. Is this way of saying what now? How if we have rejected my evangelical upbringing, if I have rejected, you know, parts or even all <laughs> of the text of my faith, then what is what does our faith look like? What does it mean to have better faith? What does it mean to make our world better by raising children with that kind of better faith? Right. And I, I say that RCU, my Facebook group, is playing the long game. You yeah. know, because raising children, we're not going to see results overnight. We're not going to publish a book and change the landscape of Christian thought. Mm -hmm. um, we're investing in little ones, five year olds, seven year olds, and, um, and shaping their who they are. Um, so it is the long game, but slow and steady wins the race, you know. <laughs> Anything that's worth doing is slow and laborious, and but ultimately, I hope most impactful. And and also, I just love it. I love um, talking about justice. I love talking about faith. I love talking about culture, and I love being able to do that through the lens of caring for children, who yeah. of course is a marginalized group in themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, they and need. <laughs> Who's going to protect them if not their parents? <laughs> right. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're beautiful. I just, right. I, you know, it's, it's such a joy to be scouring articles and, you know, writing about children. It's, it's a wonderful thing. So, 
it's been such a joy and privilege. That's yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the group and I actually, I, um, I'm, I'm much more of a Twitter addict than a Facebook one, (laughs) but I, I am, I, I am very thankful that the group is there. Cause like whenever I do log into Facebook now, uh, you know, being able to, to pop in and see what someone is sharing and I, the thing I, I appreciate is that you've created a group that is, um, very accepting of very vulnerable sorts of posts. I mean, mm-hmm. you have people that are talking about their own struggles with um, yeah. their communities that they may be in, that they disagree with, or that they may be leaving, or how they reckon with their own. Ob- I mean, I'm being vague because it's a private group and there's no right. intention, no intention right. to talk about something specific. But the but the nature of, of the conversations are very um edifying and i think it's the sort of thing that to your point about um people's um abandoning religion or religiosity but still requiring and desiring connection you've provided something like that for them and that's um and that's such a uh wonderful wonderful thing to to make available (laughs) and Uh, i think they're all kind of grappling with this question is what do we want our faith community to look like Mm -hmm. um, now? Right. And moving forward, what do we want it to look like? And we don't know because the future is unknown, but I see the group as an experiment. It's like, can can it be? And I keep test, I keep pushing boundaries, right? From the beginning of the group, I push boundaries because I said black lives matter. (laughs) you know I I push back against gender equality like I did kind of all these unorthodox things and I said can we believe in all of these things and still be loving people and caring for people and um and still um yeah be in connection yeah and what does that look like what does it look like and so it's it's an experiment and um and an exciting one and uh, we'll we'll see where it goes. And as far as the the geographical makeup of the group, how how many different different regions and, and countries are are represented? Um, with, well, within the it's group? interesting. There's a lot. There's a lot of nations. We mostly, I think, it's still mostly America, but lots of Australians and New Zealanders, mm-hmm. some Europe. You know, of course, because it's an English group that we're limited to the English speaking oh. countries. Um, but uh, it's, I, I've been interested to see how many people we have from the Bible Belt. Yeah, yeah, which makes sense because they're you know they're struggling in their physical location of with all these cultural pressures that they want to find support online from like-minded people. Right. And, so, and I just admire them so much because I can't imagine living day in and day out with people whose values that you believe are harmful to children and to society. Um, and so they're brave. They're brave people that I'm happy to support them and be, a, be an outlet for them to vent or do what they need to do. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any sort of examples of, of um, 
either either experiences or um, or tactics or whatever you might want to call it, like parenting advice um, that that was either shared or or that um, that you you see as sort of exemplary of, of the sort of results of, of having a community like this anything anything that that you think would is just representative of of what 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 is great about what is good about the group or what um yeah i know that's sort of a vague question but again i i'm 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 not trying uh, one i'm trying not to be leading and two i'm also like it is a private group i'm not trying to necessarily make you share something that's private (laughs) so um well i remember there was a mom in my group who has a gay child And so it was really, I know it was a huge support for her when her gay child was starting a small business, which we very much encourage entrepreneurship (laughs) because we believe children can make a difference in the world. And (laughs) so it was so beautiful. And he started this little business. And so a lot of um, RCU people went over and gave him likes. And, you know, so I know that was one example of her feeling very supported um, through the group. But uh, I'll I'll say that we frequently, frequently get questions about how do we raise our children on on fundamentalists when we have fundamentalist family. Mm -hmm. And so that's um, something that we talk about a lot. How do we, you know, draw those boundaries of, dealing with that. And I wrote a blog post about that, sort of an advice column. I can link that yeah. to you. If anyone listening is interested in what we have to say about that, they can check out that post. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I think that is uh, definitely one of the, one of the very common um, struggles that a lot of people face is that um, one of the things that, that I see as a, uh, one of the most problematic things I see within evangelicalism is how, over time, the the circle of orthodoxy gets tighter and tighter <laughs> around people. You know, yeah. the things that are accepted politically, the things that are accepted theologically, over time, even over the last 15 years, have gotten more and more restrictive. Um, hmm. And um, I definitely, I see that within American politics and what is what seems to be the orthodox choice within evangelicalism relative to how you're supposed to vote or whatever, um, all those different things. Um, and I think that is one of the, one of the absolute most common things is how do you either amicably, like, can you amicably na- uh, navigate familial relationships with people that differ with you? Um, yeah. or do, or is there a much more drastic choice that has to be made? Um, yeah. Because I, I think a lot of people are in are in those positions, and again, yeah. groups like yours are the ones that that in this day and age are the ones that give that sounding board and availability yeah. to people that are going through the same thing. Yeah, it is really tricky, and really, there's no one answer for everybody. It's kind of you know every situation is different, and mm-hmm. and um, but I think having moral support and knowing that you're not alone in facing these tricky situations is is very helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. So I have a question for you. Okay. 
Uh, so your podcast is called Exvangelical, which when I tell people that I'm going to be on this podcast, they think it's a very clever name. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and and one of the things that you asked me, you know, in preparing for this was what was the moment of break? What was the breaking point that made you from, I assume you meant that you went from evangelical to exvangelical. For me. And so me. I guess... I guess what I'm, my question for you is, um, yourself and the guests that you've had, um, is there usually one, is there usually a, a point? Um, I don't, well, to answer for myself, I would say that, um, for me, it was, um, similar to you, it was a, it was a gradual process. Okay. Um, I was... I I went to United Methodist um, churches, which are both like they sort of straddle a line, uh, at least in the Midwest, of being both mainline, but also can have more evangelical strains. Um, I worked in like a Christian bookstore in high school. I read a lot of evangelical books while I was there because I got a great like thirty five percent discount <laughs> on books, and I'm a voracious I reader. Yeah, C.S. Lewis got the box set. Lots of Philip Yancey. Um, you know, um, all those different sorts of things. Um, I felt a call to be a pastor when I was in high school. I went to Indiana Wesleyan with the intention of eventually going to seminary. Um, and then I had like a, uh, a crisis of faith in college that just like that changed my trajectory. So I never went to seminary. Um, it was a combination for me. It was a combination of um, disagreeing. The the lead up to the Iraq War did a lot for me. Like studying, being in a history in history classes, uh, and learning about um, learning about history. I was also a biblical literature major, and I was reading Greek, um, and learning Greek and learning about. Um, uh, I don't know. I think our professors had to had to toe a very specific line, whether it was, um, you know, a very specific line between inerrant and inspired and that sort of thing. But they talked about, you know, the differences in manuscripts and the textual research. And so I didn't even realize that, like, I sort of believed in the inerrancy. Um, like, it wasn't even like a – it was a tacit belief. It wasn't something yeah. that I – that I could even articulate then. Um, but that really shook me. Um, and then over, and then, but over the course of college, I had my own sort of political awakening that was very clearly in the American, oh, my dog, sorry, in the American system was very much more moderate Democratic than conservative Republican. Um, and now I'm even more liberal than I was then. Um, but, I was definitely democratic and that led to, um, I just could not support, uh, evangelical. Um, yeah, I just couldn't support the evangelical yeah. political viewpoint. And I could not, I could not reconcile what mm -hmm. I saw, um, in the gospels with yeah. what I saw in the political arena. I just couldn't do it. And the more yeah. I learned, <laughs> The more I learned, the harder and harder that was. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, and it just it just gets worse and worse. Um, like, I when I 
eventually I went, um, I had a couple of years after college where I wasn't really going to church. Um, and then my, uh, I went to graduate school like part-time, um, while I was working full-time and eventually discovered, um, through some coursework, the creation care movement. And that sort of revitalized my interest in Christianity. Um, I, I I wouldn't say at any point I wasn't a Christian, but, um, but at the same time, I was very, very cynical to your point earlier. I was very cynical, um, and trying to figure all these things out. Uh, but creation care, um, revitalized my faith. And then I tied that into evangelical politics and, uh, and environmentalism. And that's what I wrote my master's thesis about. Um, so, uh, so yeah. And then, um, and then that sort of revitalized my, revitalized my faith for a time. But I, at that, by that point I was much more, um, much more liberal and I was definitely no longer evangelical. I, I have a very clear moment in my mind when I was going, when I went to some sort of dinner at a restaurant with my parents and I, I, it was Bush was still president and I told him, I don't want an evangelical to ever be president again. (laughs) Um, and that, that felt like a very radical thing for me to say (laughs) at the time. But, um, um, I, I'm interested in your you saying how creation care revitalized your faith. Was it because you felt like um, kind of a biblical or a spiritual uh, reason to care for our earth was more was more deep was deeper than maybe like a hippie movement of you know tree huggers? Uh, I, I don't know. I think it was a combination. Um, so I like actually. The sequence of events, I was, um, this was like 2006, uh, yeah, 2006 or so. Um, it was, I think that was around the time an inconvenient truth came out and environmentalism was beginning in the mid two thousands to bubble up into the, into the overall consciousness. And it was actually, um, a very sort of positive thing. There wasn't that much climate skepticism at the time. Um, and then, uh, I took a graduate course on energy and the environment. Um, and that was very enlightening. It talked about all these different infrastructural, um, things and how oil work, like it was about like urban design and oil and, um, all these different like things and all these amazing books that, that were assigned. And, And the professor was like a civil engineer. Um, you know, teaching a night course to these, <laughs> to these people getting their grad graduate degrees part-time like me. Um, and then I followed that up with a course on history of environmental thought. And then I was done. Like, because <laughs> yeah. then I discovered like the historical, like people like Aldo Leopold and, um, and others, John Muir and, um, and like sort of creation affirming readings of the, the Genesis story, creation myths and, um, Wendell Berry, like changed my, like just changed everything. Like he, his, his writing, he's just, if I could, if I could swap writing ability with anyone, it would be him. (laughs) Um, but so for me, that was the thing for a while that was, uh, um, that was like, okay, these, this is like a way to sort of synthesize my, 
Christianity with, uh, with something affirming and something good, you know, something yeah. like this, this is a way to understand the biblical narrative and to understand Christian history in a way that, um, is both like natural and supernatural, I guess, in a very sort of <laughs> interesting way. That's really, um, that's really beautiful. I, I think, um, you know how I said I really resented telling testimonies as a child? Yeah. Um, but now I, I, I tell my story of faith shifting as my conversion story. You know, so <laughs> I feel like your story is kind of your conversion story. And I love, you know, yeah. I, I guess I love the conversion story. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, after that, like, that's when I, that's when I started, um, you know, I was, I was, at that point, like that was great, and then I, 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 I was laid off, and that made things difficult. But then, uh, the whole everything sort of shifted as far as um, the political support for that because of the financial crisis happened, um, and evangelicals got involved and ruined everything, and that's what my <laughs> thesis was about. Yeah. Um, so that that then that that came in with some more that provided a little more cynicism, but then there have been some peaks and valleys, but that, that was the thing that was definitely to your point, you know, that was sort of what converted, what converted and, and, and I think this is the right word for it. It like redeemed my faith in an interesting way. Um, and in a way that was, (laughs) that's very cool. So I, you know, I just want to say that, there are aspects of evangelical theology that is extremely harmful, right? Yes. Which is what your thesis was about. And I just feel like I want to make that point because I feel like a lot of people who hear evangelical voices like ours and just think we're so negative and we're just trying to be cynical. And it's like, no, we speak about these things because we think the alternative of not speaking is extremely harmful. Absolutely. That's and yeah, so I, yeah, and it's, that's what kind of drives my work because I get tired sometimes too. I don't enjoy. It's like I was saying on Twitter. I don't enjoy constantly hitting back at my my religious upbringing because there were good parts of my upbringing. Definitely. And it just, sometimes it does feel a little ungrateful, but it's like no, the alternative of not continuing to speak up against it. Those of us who know it so intimately it almost feels like we have a responsibility, yes. you know, that we're the ones that are called to say, no, this is not okay. And yeah. um, because, you know, people who didn't grow up in evangelicalism, I think they also see the harm, but they don't understand why people think the way they do. Whereas I think we do. Yes. And yes. so I think we, we do have that calling and um, privilege, if you can say that. <laughs> of understanding the intricacies of evangelicalism to, to be able to speak up against the harmful aspects of it. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's funny. I am interested in people's conversion stories, um, uh, you know, outside of evangelicalism, but I, I do up until probably my job resignation, I still identified as an evangelical, even though I probably didn't hold any of the evangelical tenets. Right. And the reason is because I feel like evangelicalism, like we've been saying, our faith is not just our faith, it's our identity. Yeah. 
And so even though I can strip away all the beliefs, I still felt like my identity was evangelical. And I felt like it would be disingenuous to say that I wasn't anymore when so much of my formation was evangelical. So I used to kind of use the example that of my race and my ethnicity and my culture, that I'm Chinese. And even if I move to America, even if I speak English, even if I dress like an American, that I'm always still going to be Chinese because it's part, it's where I was born, it's where, how I was formed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but the problem is, it's like you can't, I, I can't keep calling myself an evangelical and keep getting kicked out of evangelical institutions. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I thought, I, you know, at that point, I'm like, you know what, whatever. If yeah. I'm, if people don't want to own me as an evangelical, which I'm sure many do not, that's fine. I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't want to force it, but I, right. I do think that all of these labels, as interesting of a discussion it is, is limiting because our faith and our identity is so complicated. It's hard to know when it begins, when it um, ends, and how it's compartmentalized from almost every other aspect of our lives. Um, right. And so, yeah, it's just so complicated. It is. It is. Yeah. But that's why. That's why I think, to your point, that's why your work through RCU and your writing and everything else. Um, mm-hmm. is is important and that's why things like this like this show are are here because um, right. I mean just a, yeah just as you as as you mentioned like RCU was in many ways a type of healing for you like that that was an extension of your healing this right. is also an extension of mine I'll be very honest it's yeah. definitely an extension of mine and the reason why the show is called Exvangelical um I mean, yes, it's got a great punny element to it, but yes. also <laughs> there is uh, the 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 reason why it's called that and not post-evangelical. Or the, I mean, there's all sorts of other like right. um, there's all sorts of alternative um, alt-evangelical, whatever you want to call it. Um, right. X X just represents that you have a past relationship with this thing. It does uh, not, that makes sense. Yes. So in the sense of it being like an ex-spouse or an ex-girlfriend or an ex-employee or whatever, the thing, it, it represents a historical, um, this is where you came from and this is, yeah. this is your past. Um, and that's okay, why. That's very true. I am an ex <laughs> So in that respect, that's why to me, it's a, it's, um, that's why it, it allows the open-endedness that, that things like you, like RCU and, like podcasts and other things allow, which is to mm-hmm. the open endedness doesn't mean non specificity. It actually means more. Yeah. What I mean by that is that I that we over the last hour and twenty minutes or so have heard a long arc of your story and we know mm-hmm. you better. Um and yeah. just and other guests, like they they may be in a different place they may no longer be Christians, but that doesn't right. invalidate their experience. Um, right. And the people in your group, they may no longer, you know, whatever their position may be in life, wherever right. they may be, wherever, if they've shifted completely out of religion, right. the, it does not negate that experience. Um, right. And that's the value. Yes. <laughs> that's the value of, of um, 
of projects like 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 these. Um, and that's yeah. why I'm so that's why I was so happy to connect with you because you're yeah. <laughs> because I love, I love the idea that we can honor everyone's experience. You know, if anything has taught me about stepping outside of evangelicalism is that we don't judge and we make space. We don't have to draw a boundary. We don't have right. to control and police people's reactions. And yeah. There are people who do end up atheists or there are people who go back to church, even back to evangelical church. And, you know, there are people anywhere in between. And I, I love hearing everyone's experiences. And yeah. um, I think it gives us a lot of permission then right. to be authentic about where we are if we let others be where they are. Right. Especially if for someone, you know, for someone that may feel like it's all or nothing, like... Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's good challenge. to know. It's good to know yeah. that you can. I mean, it's not easy if you want to have clear definition, but it's good to know that you don't have to have it. You know, and that it's not going to <laughs> be the end of everything. There I think be- I did go through a phase where I did want more clarity than I was able to have for myself. Yeah. I, I, right. I want that, but I think a part of where I'm at right now in my spiritual journey is. I really am okay with not knowing. I'm okay with, I'm unsure of my um, spiritual status and yeah. I'm okay with it. I feel content and peace and, and, uh, and I do feel like uh, coming to this place has allowed me to be a soft landing ground for other people's stories because I'm able to receive all of their stories without needing to react to right. To what they are. Right. Without agenda, without, you know. And I, and almost like I can relate to all of them. Yeah. Like if somebody's raging and they're like, I can't, this, you know, I'm like, yeah, I've been there. (laughs) And then if somebody else is, you know, if another person feels like, I just want to be Zen now and I'm ready to (laughs) reconstruct and move on with the vision, I'm like, yeah, I'm on board with that. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. (laughs) And that's, I think that speaks to our, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but it's definitely something that lots of people are grappling with. And I'm very happy that, that you've created the community, that you're writing about it, that you're so vocal about it. Um, and I'm very happy that you were able to share a little bit of your time. I know that you that you have to be going soon, and I'm so happy that <laughs> that we got to have such a great conversation. Um, yeah, that's been so fun. Where where can people find you online? Where can they support your work? Plug whatever you want to plug. <laughs> okay. Um, so yes, my Facebook group is called Raising Children and Fundamentalist. And uh, I am on Twitter and I have a writer page and I will be writing my book should be should publish next year on the same topic of raising children on fundamentalists it's tentatively titled Parenting Forward with Erdman's. Um, so you can be looking for that to come. But otherwise, yeah, Google me. Yeah, great. Well, <laughs> Cindy, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I really appreciated it. Thank you. Give them a sense.
Children's love. 